0: Welcome to CP's Deep Dive. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. I interview authors whose books I have narrated, books written by authors making a positive difference in our world, tackling the tough challenges. Today I'm really pleased to be speaking with Professor Rachel Wall from the University of Virginia. She wrote the book Just Violence Torture and Human Rights in the Eyes of the Police. It's about how police and military justify their use of violence, torture, and even murder to maintain law and order. How human rights advocates attempt to teach them the value of less violent strategies. Think of this. Police believe they must essentially be judge and jury on the street because actual guilty criminals seem to face no real justice. The wealthy get expensive lawyers to avoid accountability, or politicians can intercede on behalf of a guilty perpetrator. Meanwhile, Politicians pass laws that allow police not to be accountable for their acts of violence, including killing innocent people. And generally, the poor, or those considered lesser in the eyes of the police, suffer the most, experiencing the least justice. Meanwhile, human rights advocates work to teach police and military how and why less violent law enforcement practices are needed, and too often fail. These are some of the issues investigated by Rachel's book, based on years of research. In case you think we're talking about the United States, her study takes place in India, the nation of Gandhi. But it seems police and military have similar outlooks the world over. Thank you so much for making time for a deep dive, Rachel. Thank you, Colleen. Sure. First, did I correctly and fairly characterize your book?
1: Yeah, I think what you've pointed to there is that there's really a perfect storm of beliefs about what's just and necessary and the structures and constraints within which police operate and their self-interest within those structures and constraints. So it's really not just one or the other, that in India, the police I interviewed both think that in many circumstances, it's good and right and necessary to use violence. And it's also in their interest to use it given the way The relationship between the police and elected officials operates in India and the way promotions occur and so forth.
0: So police who use violence told you that U.S. policies are their role model. Tell us about that.
1: Several police officers, they they talk about the U.S. in different ways, from the most general to the more specific. Most generally, most broadly, police will reference international rhetoric and actions of the United States in order to justify their own violence in domestic settings. So for example, police officers would say things to me like, sometimes it is necessary to use force without a trial. Uh, The United States knew this when they tracked down Osama bin Laden. So that's a, a really general broad use of the United States as a point of justification
0: haven't they also used Abu Ghraib and?
1: Yeah, and, and and sometimes they're more specific. There was occasionally, occasionally a police officer would say something like, well, I attended a training organized by the UN and we were able to visit a police station in Brooklyn and I see that police there, know that sometimes you have to use violence too. So it was occasionally more specific, more often, general perception that the US is violent and that this legitimizes violence.
0: Yeah, didn't they also refer to Gitmo?
1: Um yes, they did. There there was an officer who who referred to the practices at Guantanamo Bay as as evidence of the what he sees as the inevitable tension between human rights and policing essentially.
0: And U.S. policy. So they used U.S. policy to as a good example of why violence is needed. Is this correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. They used U.S. policy as an example of the inevitability of even in a strong democracy, the necessity of violence.
0: Tell us about some of the police you spoke to who justified the use of violence. Some specific stories.
1: So there was one officer who was quite interesting. He, uh, I interviewed him three times. He was a high-ranking police officer, Indian police service officer in New Delhi. He, in the first interview, was was very ambivalent. He had was very well-read in political theory and understood the basis of a democratic order in which arbitrary violence is not used, but still felt as if, the police needed the freedom to use violence when they saw it as necessary, regardless of what the law said. And he was kind of struggling with it, going back and forth with it. And then the second time I interviewed him, it was just a week or so after a bomb had exploded in a part of Delhi that he was responsible for, a terrorist attack at the high court. And it was amazing to see how his ambivalence had turned into clarity about the absolute necessity of using torture. And so he said things, for example, like, uh, and I'm paraphrasing now, but it was something very close to, nonviolent methods are designed for people with souls. Criminals are people without souls. And so it's not applicable. So this sense that there are hard lines between what is necessary for regular people and what is necessary for this class apart. Um, and it was, and it was, it seemed to be a response to this violent act, but it, the seeds of it were already there.
0: So how do you declare one person with a soul and another person without a soul? How do they define such people?
1: What I observed is that the police often justified violence by creating this imaginary category of exceptional criminals hardened criminals, hardcore criminals. And they did this both with domestic criminals, people who, you know, are killing people or raping people without any political motivation, as well as with political criminals, with terrorists. And what would happen is they would create what seemed to be these really hard, clear lines. These are people without a soul because of the type of crime that they commit and the number of people who the crime hurts, as if it could be some kind of mathematical inevitability that this person is extreme and this person isn't. But what was really clear is that those exceptional categories helped them to create boundaries that justified the violence, but then those boundaries in practice were really quite slippery and loose. And they would say things like, well, it's really only right to use torture with hardcore criminals or with terrorists, people in this exceptional categories. But in practice in India, because of the way the criminal justice system is so broken, we have to use it with regular criminals too. So it became absolutely right only with this exceptional category that they imagined they could tell and define based on the kind of crime and the kind of person but really it actually justified violence on a much broader scope of people. By making it sometimes right, then it was only a compromise of principles rather than an absolute violation of them.
0: And don't they feel protected when they do this, even if they kill an innocent person?
1: Yes, Um, I think the fact that they were willing to be so honest with me is suggestive of that. I expected these officers to be much more reticent about talking about torture and extrajudicial executions especially since they were all enrolled in a human rights course but they were quite open and that's because i think they know that it, there's very little accountability for police in india it's not possible to take a police officer to court without prior permission of the government and it's very hard to prosecute for torture
0: and some of the same situations are here in the United States, and although not precisely the same, where police, because of certain laws, are protected from being prosecuted for harming innocent people. hmm
1: Yes, I think that there are better laws here in the sense that an individual can take an officer to court, but there are obstacles in both countries.
0: Being someone who supports human rights, and I think I, you do too, the reason I wanted to narrate your book was to understand how police who use unjust violence think what they believe to gain an understanding, and I found myself empathizing with them. The way you tell their stories, I started to understand why they did what they did, even though it was a little, in my estimation, you know, sort of misguided, but they're, they're facing a, a dysfunctional court situation, they're facing mm-hmm. politicians and wealthy people who mm-hmm. are stacking the deck against justice. So they feel that in their heart, they're doing the country a favor by taking the actions that they do. And this includes arresting and harming protesters.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, most of the human rights activists and educators who I interviewed assume that police know that what they're doing is wrong. So they try to either shame police, or they try to appeal to their consciences, or they try to remind them of the law. And one of the reasons that those tactics don't work, I think, is because police tend to think that what they're doing is right. They don't see justice as based on equal protections from harm. They see justice as based on helping or hurting people as they deserve. That's deeply different.
0: While police and human rights advocates tend to see each other as adversaries, they both generally have the same goal. They both want peaceful justice. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me like the triumvirate of politicians, the wealthy and dysfunctional courts pretty much creates a wall that prevents these goals from being attained or possibly even attainable, and yet they still focus on each other, the police on human rights advocates and the advocates on police.
1: Police also see politicians as a source of their violence, but it's also possible that police are using politicians as a way to explain the kind of violence that they don't want to justify. So police essentially have three categories of the kinds of violence that they commit in terms of their own thinking about it. Uh There's violence that they see as absolutely right. And that's torture, extraditional executions of the people who they see as really extreme criminals. And they absolutely defend that and they take full responsibility for it. They think that it's necessary and right. And they think that they would do it regardless of whether there were politicians telling them to or not. And then there's this much looser category of violence against people who they see as regular criminals, people who are stealing, that kind of thing. And they think that they would do that, you know, regardless of what politicians say as well, but if the criminal justice system in India were better, if conditions were better, if there was a stronger court system, then they think that kind of violence wouldn't be necessary. But then the third category is violence that they commit against people who are innocent, people who are being framed, And that is what they blame on politicians. So they see elected officials as responsible for the kind of violence that they really want to distance themselves from. Now, I think what happens in practice is that those three categories, while they're very important to police, are actually much, much looser. So somebody maybe has committed a couple of petty thefts and robberies, the supervisor is being pressured by politicians to be harder on criminals a wealthy person who's well-connected thinks somebody stole thinks that person stole from them and they're putting pressure on the police and the officer thinks that this is a really bad guy who needs to be roughed up for the sake of social control but the person hasn't necessarily committed the robbery in this particular case so I think, in in practice, these three categories are much looser.
0: You've talked about the ineffectiveness of human rights agencies to make a difference in these classes, but the police still take them. Why do police take the human rights courses, and what motivates them?
1: Well, first I'll say that I don't know that human rights education is ineffective in general. I think that trying to educate large numbers of officers through distance education, on the hardest topics, torture and extrajudicial execution is not effective. But I think it's possible that it is effective in areas of human rights that police are more responsive to. So police, even though this was not the focus of my book, police were enthusiastic about other aspects of what the human rights course was teaching them, such as how to better help poor children, for example. So I don't think it was completely ineffective. But to answer your question, they enrolled in this course mainly because they hoped that a postgraduate degree would help them get a promotion or to help them get jobs after retirement. So a lot of these police were really hoping to get security jobs with the UN, for example, and they felt that a human rights degree would help them to get a UN job after they retire from the police department. At least one of them was successful. The uh, The officer I mentioned, one of the officers I've quoted, um, he received a, a U.N. posting.
0: Protesters are seen by police as upsetting the state, and therefore they are eligible for harsh treatment. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Would you explain that?
1: I think this is, again, like torture, a combination of principled and practical motivations. I found police explaining this in terms of a kind of utilitarian reasoning, where one officer explained that he gave the orders to fire on a crowd of protesters, uh, which resulted in the death of a farmer who was among the protesters who was protesting, and he talked about going to visit the farmer's family after his death. And I was asking him, you know, how do you feel about this? How do you think about it? How do you explain it to yourself? And he said. It's a matter of simple mathematics. And went on to explain that the number of people who were being harmed by these protesters who are blocking the road exceeds the number of people who were harmed by firing on the protesters. He was saying, when this road is blocked, there are thousands of people who are impacted. Emergency vehicles can't get through. Livelihoods are stopped. People don't get goods and services. And so we make a choice to fire in this small number of protesters to stop that. Once again, it's this idea that violence is necessary. People who harm others deserve violence and require it. And then at the same time, it's also this practical larger setting of his job is to open the road. He's been told to open the road at all costs and probably would lose his job or be given a really undesirable posting if he fails to.
0: Are jobs hard to get there, and therefore this is a job that people would want to get and would do anything to keep?
1: Well, in India, the police are divided into two different types. One is the elite Indian police service, um, and these these are desirable jobs. Police at people take a national all-India services examination, which is a really academically difficult exam. You have to be well educated to do well on it. And if you do really, really well, then you're given a posting in the um, administrative service, where you become a, a fairly high level bureaucrat. And then the second best, um, I believe it's second best, is becoming an Indian police service officer. Now, they are posted around the country in supervisory positions. But There is also a totally different strata of police, the Indian, the state police services. And these, under the colonial regime, were Native people, were Indian people, right? Whereas the supervisory ranks were primarily British. And now, uh, the state police service officers are typically less well-educated and treated pretty badly, It requires a 10th grade education only, you're mainly selected for physical strength, and you have a pretty difficult existence. So it's not a great job, but if you don't have many other options, then you want to keep it.
0: What in your research do you believe was your most profound discovery?
1: That police really believe that causing people to suffer is necessary for a good society that you can't have a good society without violence, without suffering. They see this kind of darkness as necessary for the light.
0: What makes a difference for human rights advocates working with police?
1: I think that the best hope is to attempt to root out in partnerships with officers, what is in it for them to be less violent and try to partner with them to find ways to be less violent without losing their jobs. Now some of that motivation is going to come from the kinds of naming and shaming that activists do because police in India don't have much other motivation to be less violent. So being taken to court if they're able to be or publicly shamed may be a motivation, but it can't be only that police also need to feel that human rights activists have their interests at heart as well and are going to work with them as partners to try to make their jobs better. I think nonviolent methods need to be printed to police as a way to make their jobs better and more successful and easier.
0: So working conditions, is that what you're talking about? Better working conditions, more support?
1: Well, I think that's a different thing, but also important. So Yes, I do think human rights activists should advocate for the working conditions of police, but I think I also need to show them how not using torture is in their
0: interest. I find it interesting because this is, I've been to India and this is the country of Gandhiji. Mm-hmm. This is the country that was one of the first nonviolent peace movements that overturned a British ruler. Mm-hmm. So this must play a part in their history.
1: Yeah. They often asked officers about this, and I remember one high-ranking officer said something like, well, when protesters are non-violent, then Gandhian methods will work, but when they're violent, then they must be handled with an iron fist. So police don't see Gandhian methods as practical. They see them as idealistic for this particular moment in national history, but not practical for day-to-day policing work. And there's also a lot of discussion in India, or at least there was when I was there in, you know, among intellectuals and in the popular press about the ways in which the nationalist movement, the movement for independence did involve a lot of violence and the way in which the nonviolent aspects of it perhaps have been overblown. So there's a general feeling that that's not real.
0: So in other words, they feel like the whole Gandhi movement was a little romanticized?
1: Mm Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: I wonder if they would feel the same way about the Nelson Mandela movement as well,
1: perhaps I don't know,
0: yeah. what about police attitude toward human rights overall? Knight? Is this a concept that they think is important, real, or even worth talking about? Do they believe there's change there's there's hope for change regarding their treatment?
1: Well, I remember there was one officer um, who was serving in um jammu and kashmir which is a state under that's been under emergency law since the 1950s and police there and the military there who have policing powers have been extremely violent against the local majority muslim population and i was asking him about his experience in the course and you know he was ambivalent and i asked him why and he said because human rights have nothing to do with my work rachel Um, I think they they see it as a set of rules and requirements that are naive and uninformed about what it actually takes to police.
0: So do you believe that the educators, the human rights educators, need to tap into that and show them how it actually does make a difference? I'm actually narrating a book right now that talks about that very thing.
1: Oh, really? What book is it?
0: the power of nonviolence. They take the notion that indeed it is, uh, it can be overpowering for people to be strongly, sternly nonviolent. Yeah, It does make a difference, but only when there are, of course, large groups of people involved when everybody agrees on the goals. It does and, and has made a difference, but they don't see that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that human rights educators and activists, if they want to reach police need to partner with people who have a lot of experience in law enforcement and security. And those people need to be the ones, need to be the face of the message. Need to be the ones to talk about on a very technical level, how one can succeed nonviolently, but also on a on the level of moral authority, how it helps one's position, how it makes one's life easier and more respectable. (laughs) You know, somebody who really understands this work and can show that they understand this work needs to talk about the tangible benefits for police and connect to their sense of justice rather than this sense of justice that they don't actually believe
0: in. So it sounds like there's empathy that needs to happen on both sides. The police need to empathize with the notion of human rights and what it can mean in a society And the human rights people need to empathize with the police and what they're up against. And they feel in some ways, I I felt they felt victimized by a system that doesn't allow them to do their work without violence.
1: Yeah. And I'm not terribly optimistic about either of those. And so that's why I think it's really important to have a middleman, to have somebody who's has experience in law enforcement, but who is not in it, who's not currently a police officer who is bought into the human rights framework, who can be a a liaison, who can be the person who actually conducts the human rights trainings for police, who can say, you know, I have 20 years as a police officer and this is the way you can do it and this is why it's in your interest and this is why it's good, because I don't think that police, at least not the police in India who I interviewed, are going to, on principle, be moved by the human rights framework. And I also don't think that most human rights activists are going to be moved by police because they're so appalled by what police do. So I think you need a go-between, someone with a foot in both worlds. And those people are hard to find, but I think that's that's what you need.
0: That's the key to making a difference. And you said that while you did your research in India, that there are remarkable similarities to developed nations around the world.
1: Yeah. Um, It's no secret that there's violence in the U.S. and the U.K. The police and developed democracies are violent in some ways that are similar, some ways that are different, but this is not a problem that is specific to India or to developing countries.
0: And the militarization of police. Mm Mm-hmm. So are you writing another
1: book? Um, I am. I've started to look at what might be possible through public dialogue and deliberation. I started looking at public forums between police and communities of color in the United States. And I've become interested in what police and communities as well as people on opposing sides of our country's political divides might be able to learn from each other through public dialogue.
0: Sounds like a very important book.
1: Thank you. In the fall, I'll be starting a new study looking at um, dialogues between people who voted for Trump and people who voted for Clinton. And that will be, that, that study will be part of the book.
0: Terrific. Is there something that you would like to leave us with, a thought that you'd like to leave us with regarding your book, that you think is very important for us to know, and also so we can make a difference?
1: I think it's that the attempt to maintain some level of empathy or comprehension for perpetrators does not need to be antithetical to the attempt to condemn and stop violence. I think we are afraid to understand because it seems to excuse. And I don't think that we need to be afraid. I think it's important to try to understand when it's possible the root of violence and the perceptions and thinking and circumstances that exacerbate it and motivate it.
0: Terrific. Well, thank you very much, Professor Rachel Wall.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for your thoughts and questions.
0: Sure. Professor Rachel Wall with the University of Virginia, author of Just Violence, Torture and Human Rights in the Eyes of Police. Thank you so much for joining CP's Deep Dive. You are making a difference. Join us for our next CP's Deep Dive when I'll be speaking with law professors Frank Turkheimer and Michael Basler, authors of Forgotten Trials of the Holocaust, analyzing 10 international trials other than Nuremberg that dealt with Nazi and collaborator defendants who participated in killing tens of millions of Jews, Slavs, Romas, or Gypsies, Russians, and other innocent victims during Hitler's Holocaust. It is very enlightening. It's also a breathtaking look at how the law works to get and avoid justice for some pretty egregious criminals. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. We record at Bayman Studio. To contact me, email cpzdeepdive, that's cpzdeepdive, one word, at gmail.com. Chris is at baymanstudio.com. I'm at colleenpatrick.com. Let's make a difference.